This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Michael Orazio, Michelle Zicker, Rowie McDonald Moss, Sage Johnson, and Rob. Thank you all so, so much for being supporters of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these wonderful names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So if this podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to all kinds of poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. Um, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, 
If you'd like to be a part of the Sleepy Podcast, then go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, I'm very happy to be bringing you a brand new bedtime story. After being on the road for a few weeks and being a little too busy, Tonight, I'm going to be reading some Jules Verne, who we've read on the show before with uh, Around the World in 80 Days, and tonight we're going to be reading his book, Journey to the Center of the Earth. I've been feeling the uh, pang for adventure a little bit lately, so Jules Verne's writing is kind of uh, perfect to read at the moment keeps my imagination going and as the weather has become nicer and I want to stretch my legs a little bit more this is just really wonderful stuff to read maybe dream about so tonight I hope it can help you doze off into a deep deep slumber and without further ado journey to the center of the earth by Jules Verne. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1. The Professor and His Family On the 24th of May, 1863, my uncle, Professor Leidenbrock, rushed into his little house, number 19, Konigstrasse, one of the oldest streets in the oldest portion of the city of Hamburg. Martha must have concluded that she was very much behind hand, for the dinner had only just been put into the oven. Well now, said I to myself, if that most impatient of men is hungry, what a disturbance he will make. Mr. Leidenbrock so soon cried poor Martha in great alarm, half opening the dining room door. Yes, Martha, but very likely the dinner is not half cooked, for it is not two yet. St. Michael's clock has only just struck half past one. Then why has the master come home so soon? Perhaps he will tell us that himself. Here he is, Monsieur Axel. I will run and hide myself while you argue with him. And Martha retreated in safety into her own dominions. I was left alone. 
But how is it possible for a man of my undecided turn of mind to argue successfully with so irascible a person as the professor? With this persuasion, I was hurrying away to my own little retreat upstairs when the street door creaked upon its hinges. Heavy feet made the whole flight of stairs to shake and the master of the house, passing rapidly through the dining room, threw himself in haste into his own sanctum. But on his rapid way, he had found time to fling his hazel stick into a corner, his rough broad-brim upon the table, and these few emphatic words at his nephew. Axel, follow me. I had scarcely had time to move when the professor was again shouting after me. What? Not come yet? And I rushed into my redoubtable master's study. Otto Leidenbrock had no mischief in him. I willingly allow that. But unless he very considerably changes as he grows older, at the end he will be a most original character. He was professor at the Johannium and was delivering a series of lectures on mineralogy in the course of every one of which he broke into a passion once or twice at least. Not at all that he was over-anxious about the improvement of his class or about the degree of attention with which they listened to him or the success which might eventually crown his labors. Such little matters of detail never troubled him much. His teaching was, as the German philosophy calls it, subjective. It was to benefit himself, not others. He was a learned egotist. He was a well of science, and the pulleys worked uneasily when he wanted to draw anything out of it. In a word, he was a learned miser. Germany has not a few professors of this sort. To his misfortune, my uncle was not gifted with a sufficiently rapid utterance. Not to be sure when he was talking at home, but certainly in his public delivery. This is a want much to be deplored in a speaker. The fact is that during the course of his lectures at the Johannium, the professor often came to a complete standstill. He fought with willful words that refused to pass his struggling lips, such words as resist and distend the cheeks and at last break out into the unasked for shape of a round and most unscientific oath. Then his fury would gradually abate. Now in mineralogy there are many half Greek and half Latin terms very hard to articulate and which would be most trying to a poet's measures. I don't wish to say a word against so respectable a science. Far be that from me. 
True. In the august presence of rhombohedral crystals, retinous faltic resins, gelinites, vasates, molybdenites, tungstates of manganese, and titanite of zirconium. Why the most facile of tongues may make a slip now and then. It therefore happened that this venial fault of my uncle's came to be pretty well understood in time, and an unfair advantage was taken of it. The students laid wait for him in dangerous places, and when he began to stumble, loud was the laughter, which is not in good taste, not even in Germans. And if there was always a full audience to honor the Leidenbrock courses, I should be sorry to conjecture how many came to make merry at my uncle's expense. Nevertheless, my good uncle was a man of deep learning, a fact I am most anxious to assert and reassert. Sometimes he might irretrievably injure a specimen by his too great ardor in handling it, but still he united in the genius of a true geologist with the keen eye of a mineralogist. Armed with his hammer, his steel pointer, his magnetic needles, his blowpipe, and his bottle of nitric acid, he was a powerful man of science. He would refer any mineral to its proper place among the 600 elementary substances now enumerated by its fracture, its appearance, its hardness, its fusibility, its sonorousness, its smell, and its taste. The name of Leidenbrock was honorably mentioned in colleges and learned societies. Humphrey Davy, Humboldt, Captain Sir John Franklin, General Sabine, never failed to call upon him on their way through Hamburg. Becquerel, Evelman, Brewster, Dumas, Milne Edwards, St. Clair de Ville, frequently consulted him upon the most difficult problems in chemistry, a science which was indebted to him for considerable discoveries. For in 1853, there it appeared at Leipzig an imposing folio by Otto Leidenbrock entitled A Treatise Upon Transcendental Chemistry with Plates. A work, however, which failed to cover its expenses. To all these titles to honor, let me add that my uncle was the curator of the Museum of Mineralogy formed by M. Struve the Russian ambassador, the most valuable collection, the fame of which was European. Such was the gentleman who addressed me in that impetuous manner. Fancy a tall, spare man of an iron constitution and with a fair complexion which took off a good ten years from the fifty he must own to. His restless eyes were incessant motion behind his full-sized spectacles. 
His long, thin nose was like a knife blade. Boys had been heard to remark that that organ was magnetized and attracted iron fillings. But this was merely a mischievous report. It had no attraction except for snow, which had seemed to draw to itself in great quantities. When I have added, to complete my portrait, that my uncle walked by mathematical strides of a yard and a half, and that in walking he kept his fists firmly closed, a sure sign of irritable temperament, I think I shall have said enough to disenchant anyone who should by mistake have coveted much of his company. He lived in his own little house in Konigstrasse, a structure half brick and half wood, with a gable cut into steps. It looked upon one of those winding canals which intersect each other in the middle of the ancient quarter of Hamburg and which the great fire of 1842 had fortunately spared. It is true that the old house stood slightly off the perpendicular and bulged out a little towards the street. Its roof sloped a little to one side, like the cap over the left ear of a tug-and-bun student. Its lines wanted accuracy, but after all it stood firm, thanks to an old elm which buttressed it in the front and which often in spring sent its young sprays through the window panes. My uncle was tolerably well off for a German professor. The house was his own and everything in it. The living contents were his goddaughter Graben a young Verlandes of seventeen, Martha, and myself. As his nephew and an orphan, I became his laboratory assistant. I freely confess that I was exceedingly fond of geology and all its kindred sciences. The blood of a mineralogist was in my veins, and in the midst of my specimens, I was always happy. In a word, a man might live happily enough in the little old house in Konigstrasse, in spite of the restless impatience of its master. For although he was a little too excitable, he was very fond of me. But the man had no notion how to wait. Nature herself was too slow for him. In April... After I had planted in the terracotta pots outside his window, seeding plants of mignonette and convolvus, he would go and give them a little pull by their leaves to make them grow faster. In dealing with such a strange individual, there was nothing for it but prompt obedience. I therefore rushed after him. Chapter 2 A Mystery to be Solved at Any Price That study of his was a museum and nothing else. 
Specimens of everything known in mineralogy lay there in their places in perfect order and correctly named, divided into flammable, metallic, and lithoid minerals. How well I knew all these bits of science. Many a time, instead of enjoying the company of lads of my own age, I had preferred dusting these graphites, anthracites, coals, lignites, and peats. And there were bitumens, resins, organic salts to be protected from the least grain of dust, and metals from iron to gold, metals whose current value altogether disappeared in the presence of the republican equality of scientific specimens. And stones, too, enough to rebuild entirely the house in Konigstrasse, even with a handsome additional room, which would have suited me admirably. But on entering this study, now I thought of none of all these wonders. My uncle alone filled my thoughts. He had thrown himself into a velvet easy chair and was grasping between his hands a book over which he bent, pondering with intense admiration. Here's a remarkable book. What a wonderful book, he was exclaiming. These ejaculations brought to my mind the fact that my uncle was liable to occasional fits of bibliomania. But no old book had any value in his eyes unless it had the virtue of being nowhere else to be found, at any rate, of being illegible. Well now, don't you see it yet? Why, I've got a priceless treasure that I found this morning in rummaging in old Havelius's shop. Magnificent, I reply, with a good imitation of enthusiasm. What was the good of all this fuss about an old quarto, bound in rough cap, a yellow, faded volume with a ragged seal depending from it? But for all that, there was no lull yet in the admiring exclamations of the professor. See, he went on, both asking the questions and supplying the answers. Isn't it a beauty? Yes, splendid. Did you ever see such a binding? Doesn't the book open easily? Yes, it stops open anywhere. But does it shut equally well? Yes, for the binding and the leaves are flush, all in a straight line, and no gaps or openings anywhere. And look at its back. After 700 years... Why, Bazarian, Kloss, or Pergold might have been proud of such a binding. While rapidly making these comments, my uncle kept opening and shutting the old tome. I really could do no less than ask a question about its contents, although I did not feel the slightest interest. And what is the title of this marvelous work? I asked with an affected eagerness 
which he must have been very blind not to see through. This work, replied my uncle, firing up with renewed enthusiasm. This work is the Heims Kringla of Snorre Tarlson, the most famous Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is the chronicle of the Norwegian princes who ruled in Iceland. Indeed, I cried, keeping up wonderfully. Of course, it is a German translation. What? sharply replied the professor. A translation? What should I do with a translation? This is the Icelandic original in the magnificent idiomatic vernacular, which is both rich and simple. It admits of an infinite variety grammatical combinations and verbal modifications. Like German, I happily ventured. Yes, replied my uncle, shrugging his shoulders. But in addition to all this, the Icelandic has three numbers like the Greek and irregular declensions of nouns proper like the Latin. Ah, said I, a little moved out by my indifference. And is the type good? Type? What do you mean by talking of type, wretched Axel? Type? Do you take it for a printed book, you ignorant fool? It is a manuscript, a runic manuscript. Runic? Yes. Do you want me to explain what that is? Of course not, I replied in the tone of an injured man. But my uncle persevered and told me against my will of many things I cared nothing about. Runic characters were in use in Iceland in former ages. They were invented, it is said, by Odin himself. Look there and wonder, impious young man, and admire these letters, the invention of the Scandinavian god. Well, well, not knowing what to say, I was going to prostrate myself before his wonderful book, a way of answering equally pleasing to the gods and kings, and which has the advantage of never giving them any embarrassment when a little incident happened to divert conversation into another channel. This was the appearance of a dirty slip of parchment, which slipped out of the volume and fell upon the floor. My uncle pounced upon this shred with incredible avidity. An old document, enclosed in immemorial time within the folds of this old book, had for him an immeasurable value. What's this? he cried. And he laid out upon the table a piece of parchment, five inches by three, and along which were traced certain mysterious characters. Here is the exact facsimile. I think it is important to let these strange signs be publicly known for they were the means of drawing on Professor Leidenbrock and his nephew 
to undertake the most wonderful expedition of the 19th century. The professor mused a few moments over this series of characters, then raising his spectacles, he pronounced, These are runic letters. They are exactly like those of the manuscript of Snorri Turlson. But what on earth is their meaning? Runic letters appearing to my mind to be an invention of the learned to mystify this poor world. I was not sorry to see my uncle suffering the pangs of mystification. At least, so it seemed to me, judging from his fingers, which were beginning to work with terrible energy. It is certainly old Icelandic, he muttered between his teeth. And Professor Leidenbrock must have known, for he was acknowledged to be quite a polyglot. Not that he could speak fluently in the 2,000 languages and 12,000 dialects which are spoken on earth, but he knew at least his share of them. So he was going, in the presence of this difficulty, to give way to all the impetuosity of his character, and I was preparing for a violent outbreak when two o'clock struck by the little timepiece over the fireplace. At that moment, our good housekeeper Martha opened the door, saying, Dinner is ready. I am afraid he sent that soup to where it would boil away to nothing, and Martha took to her heels for safety. I followed her, and hardly knowing how I got there, I found myself seated in my usual place. I waited a few minutes. No professor came. Never within my remembrance had he missed the important ceremonial of dinner. And yet what a good dinner it was. There was parsley soup, an omelet made of ham garnished with spiced sorrel, a filet of veal with compote of prunes. For dessert, crystallized fruit, the whole washed down with sweet moselle. All this my uncle was going to sacrifice to a bit of old parchment. As an affectionate and attentive nephew, I considered it my duty to eat for him as well for myself, which I did conscientiously. I have never known such a thing, said Martha. Mr. Leidenbrock is not at table. Who could have believed it, I said, with my full mouth. Something serious is going to happen, said the servant, shaking her head. My opinion was that nothing more serious would happen than an awful scene when my uncle should have discovered that his dinner was devoured. I had come to the last of the fruit when a very loud voice tore me away from the pleasures of my desire. With one spring, I bounded out of the dining room into the study.
Chapter 3 The Runic Writing Exercises the Professor Undoubtedly, it is runic, said the professor, bending his brows. But there is a secret in it, and I mean to discover the key. A violent gesture finished the sentence. Sit there, he added, holding out his fist towards the table. Sit there and write. I was seated in a trice. Now I will dictate to you every letter of our alphabet which corresponds with each of these Icelandic characters. We will see what that will give us. But, by St. Michael, if you should dare to deceive me. The dictation commenced. I did my best. Every letter was given me one after the other, with the following remarkable result. When this work was ended, my uncle tore the paper from me and examined it attentively for a long time. What does it all mean? He kept repeating mechanically. Upon my honor, I could not have enlightened him. Besides, he did not ask me, and he went on talking to himself. This is what is called a cryptogram, or cipher, he said, in which letters are purposefully thrown into confusion, which if properly arranged would reveal their sense. Only think that under this jargon there may lie concealed the clue to some great discovery. As for me, I was of opinion that there was nothing at all in it, though, of course, I took care not to say so. Then the professor took the book and the parchment and diligently compared them together. These two writings are not by the same hand, he said. The cipher is of later date than the book, an undoubted proof of which I see in the moment. The first letter is a double M, a letter which is not to be found in Tarleson's book, and which was only added to the alphabet in the 14th century. Therefore, there are 200 years between the manuscript and the document. I admitted that this was a strictly logical conclusion, I am therefore led to imagine, continued my uncle, that some professor of this book wrote these mysterious letters. But who was that professor? Is his name nowhere to be found in the manuscript? My uncle raised his spectacles, took up a strong lens, and carefully examined the blank pages of the book. On the front of the second, the title page, he noticed a sort of stain which looked like an ink blot. But in looking at it very closely, he thought he could distinguish some half-effaced letters. My uncle at once fastened upon this as the center of interest, and he labored at that blot until by the help of his microscope, he ended by making out the following runic characters 
which he read without difficulty. Arne Sacknesam, he cried in triumph. Why, that is the name of another Icelander, a savant of the 16th century, a celebrated alchemist. I gazed at my uncle with satisfactory admiration. Those alchemists, he resumed, Avicenna, Bacon, Lolly, Paracelsus, were the real and only savants of their time. They made discoveries at which we are astonished. Has not this Sacknesum concealed under his cryptogram some surprising invention? It is so. It must be so. The professor's imagination took fire at this hypothesis. No doubt, I ventured to reply. But what interest would he have in thus hiding so marvelous a discovery? Why, why, how can I tell? Did not Galileo do the same by Saturn? We shall see. I will get at the secret of this document, and I will neither sleep nor eat until I have found it out. My comment on this was a half-suppressed, oh, nor you either, Axel, he added. The deuce, said I to myself, then it is lucky I have eaten two dinners today. First of all, we must find out the key to this cipher. That cannot be difficult. At these words, I quickly raised my head, but my uncle went on soliloquizing. There's nothing easier. In this document, there are 132 letters, 77 consonants, and 55 vowels. This is the proportion found in southern languages. Whilst northern tongues are much richer in consonants, therefore this is a southern language. These were very fair conclusions, I thought. But what language is it? Here I looked for a display of learning, but I met instead with profound analysis. This Saknesam, he went on, was a very well-informed man. Now, since he was not writing in his own mother tongue, he would naturally select that which was currently adopted by the choice spirits of the 16th century. I mean Latin. If I am mistaken, I can but try Spanish, French, Italian, Greek, or Hebrew. But the savants of the 16th century generally wrote in Latin. I am therefore entitled to pronounce this, a priori, to be Latin. It is Latin. I jumped up in my chair. My Latin memories rose in revolt against the notion that these barbarous words could belong to the sweet language of Virgil. Yes, it is Latin, my uncle went on but it is Latin confused in disorder. Pertubata, su, inordinata, 
as Euclid has her. Very well, thought I, if you can bring order out of that confusion, my dear uncle, you are a clever man. Let us examine carefully, said he again, taking up the leaf upon which I had written. Here is a series of 132 letters in apparent disorder. There are words consisting of consonants only, as neurals. Others, on the other hand, in which vowels predominate. As for instance, the fifth, unae, or the last but one, osibo. Now this arrangement has evidently not been premeditated. It has arisen mathematically in obedience to the unknown law which has ruled in the succession of these letters. It appears to me a certainty that the original sentence was written in a proper manner and afterwards distorted by a law which we have yet to discover. Whoever possesses the key of this cipher will read it with fluency. What is that key? Axel, have you got it? I answered not a word, and for a very good reason. My eyes had fallen upon a charming picture, suspended against the wall, a portrait of Graben. My uncle's ward was at that time in Altona, staying with a relation and in her absence I was very downhearted. For I may confess it to you now, the pretty Verlandes and the professor's nephew loved each other with a patience and a calmness entirely German. We had become engaged unknown to my uncle, who was too much taken up with geology to be able to enter in such feelings as ours. Graben, was a lovely, blue-eyed blonde, rather given to gravity and seriousness. But that did not prevent her from loving me very sincerely. As for me, I adored her, if there is such a word in the German language. Thus it happened that the picture of my pretty Verlandes threw me in a moment out of the world of realities into that of memory and fancy. There looked down upon me the faithful companion of my labors and my recreations. Every day she helped me to arrange my uncle's precious specimens. She and I labeled them together. Mademoiselle Graben was an accomplished mineralogist. She could have taught a few things to a savant. She was fond of investigating abstruse scientific questions. What pleasant hours we have spent in study, and how often I envy the very stones which she handled with her charming fingers. Then, when our leisure hours came, we used to go out together and turn into the shady avenues by the Ulster and went happily side by side up to the old windmill, which formed such an improvement to the landscape at the head of the lake. 
On the road we chatted hand in hand. I told her amusing tales, at which she laughed heartily. Then we reached the banks of the Elbe, and after having bid goodbye to the swan, sailing gracefully amidst the white water lilies, we returned to the quay by the steamer. This is just where I was in my dream, when my uncle, with a vehement thump on the table, dragged me back to the realities of life. Come, said he, the very first idea which would come into anyone's head to confuse the letters of a sentence would be to write the words vertically instead of horizontally. Indeed, said I. Now we must see what would be the effect of that, Axel. Put down upon this paper any sentences you like only instead of arranging the letters in the usual way, one after the other. Place them in succession in vertical columns, so as to group them together in five or six vertical lines. I caught his meaning, and immediately produced the following literary wonder. I love oh, Nengi, the Mandarin, Iye. Good, said the professor, without reading them. Now, set down those words in a horizontal line. I obey, and with this result, I loal, lawar, barangay, vermandarin, Iye. Excellent, said my uncle, taking the paper hastily out of my hands. This begins to look just like an ancient document. The vowels and the consonants are grouped together in equal disorder. There are even capitals in the middle of words, and commas too, just as in Suck Newsom's parchment. I consider these remarks very clever. Now, said my uncle, looking straight at me, to read the sentence which you have just written, and with which I am wholly unacquainted, I shall only have to take the first letter of each word, then the second, the third, and so forth. And my uncle, to his great astonishment, and my much greater, read, I love you well, my own dear Gravin. Hello, cried the professor. Yes, indeed. Without knowing what I was about, like an awkward and unlucky lover, I had compromised myself by writing this unfortunate sentence. Aha, you are in love with Gravin, he said, with the right look for a guardian. Yes, no, I stammered. You love Gravin, he went on once or twice dreamily. Well, let us apply the process I have suggested to the document in question. My uncle, falling back into his absorbing contemplations, had already forgotten my imprudent words. 
I merely say imprudent, for the great mind of so learned a man, of course, had no place for love affairs. And happily the grand business of the document gained me the victory. Just as the moment of the supreme experiment arrived, the professor's eyes flashed right through his spectacles. There was a quivering in his fingers as he grasped the old parchment. He was deeply moved. At last, he gave a preliminary call, and with profound gravity, naming in succession the first, then the second letter of each word, he dictated me the following. I confess I felt considerably excited in coming to the end. These letters named one at a time had carried no sense to my mind. I therefore waited for the professor with great pomp to unfold the magnificent but hidden Latin of this mysterious phrase. But who could have foretold the result? A violent thump made the furniture rattle and spilt some ink, and my pen dropped from between my fingers. That's not it, cried my uncle. There's no sense in it. Then, darting out like a shot, bowing downstairs like an avalanche, he rushed into the Kogenstrasse and fled. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.